Welcome to the Juno Report for February. The Juno Report is presented by Guide Dog Users Incorporated, an affiliate of ACB. We are pleased this month to bring you a very special Juno Report from the 2019, 20, uh, 2019 GDUI Convention. Yeah, it would be helpful if I could learn to say it, wouldn't it? This uh, particular presentation is called The Forest and the Trees Comparing Pet Foods. Let's go ahead because it's going to take our entire time to uh, present this to you. So let's just get right to it. I'm so thankful and honored to be here with you guys. I'm always excited when anybody is as excited as I am about dog food. So... (laughs) I hope this presentation takes you kind of through the different choices that are available to you today. And my real and sincere hope is that you will not take my opinion on anything today, but that you will be able, by the time you leave, to formulate your own opinion and what is best for you and your dog in particular, because every dog is an individual. So I'm going to just start, because I think it's only fair, Um, by just telling you a little bit about myself and um, any kind of disclaimers that I might have. So you can also decide, should you listen to me or not? Um, (laughs) So I am Dr. Renee Streeter. I did um, my vet school at Ross University, and then I went on to do residency at Cornell. What I'm doing currently is uh, I do see individual patients, nutrition patients, at the VMC in Syracuse, New York, where we talk about um, pets with special needs that might need special diets to help them manage their diseases. The other thing that I do is I am a nutrition consultant for several startup pet food companies. So these are companies who are making dog foods, making cat foods, making supplements, um, are making treats, and so my job is to help guide them um, into safe formulations and just ensure that hopefully everything is as safe as possible for these products that are going out onto the market. And so that does mean um, that I, you know, I am paid by many different pet food companies for advice, um, but no one in particular. So hopefully you will not find what I'm saying as jaded because um, it is uh, not my job to be influenced by them, but hopefully to influence these companies to put out the safest products possible. So now that I've said all that, I am going to take you through all the different choices for pet foods and kind of the pros and cons of each thing and hopefully touch on some of the new hot topics as well. If we're really super lucky and I talk fast, um, and I always do, so pay attention, um, we will have time at the end for questions. We're going to start first by just talking about the history of pet food. So first, in 1860, the first commercial dog biscuit was produced by James Spratt. And then it wasn't until 1906 that the F.H. Bennett Biscuit Company developed the Maltoid Biscuit, which was later named Milk Bones. So Milk Bones have been around since 1906. And then that company was purchased um, by Nabisco. In 1922, the Chapel Brothers came out with the first canned food for pets and then developed a dry product, which was a meal. So that's similar to like what um, horses and cows will eat, more of a, a granular meal. Then in 1957, Purina created and marketed the first extruded dog food, which was known as Purina dog chow. So Purina dog chow has been around since 1957. 
Prior to all that, what did we do? Well, most dogs were fed table scraps and whatever was given to them by their owners. With that said, we now need to consider our individual dogs. Uh, they're all individual, and each food will not work for each dog, but lots of foods will work for many dogs. Uh, how are we going to decide what to feed them? We start by classifying pet foods to help us understand the pros and cons of each type of food. And hopefully that will make it easier for us to decide what is best for our dog. One way to do this is to break the different types down by their moisture content. So this will give us dry foods which have between 3 and 11% moisture, semi-moist foods that will have 25 to 35% moisture, and wet foods that have 60 to 87% moisture. So let's start with the benefits of dry food. They're great because they store and travel really well, and they can be left out for the longest amount of time. It's also the most economic of the three types. The downside to feeding dry foods is that they tend to be less palatable than foods with higher moisture contents. What about wet foods? Well, they have the longest shelf life, and they're also highly palatable. The increased moisture content might also help prevent or treat certain issues, such as lower urinary tract diseases. A consideration with these foods is that they are higher in fat often, but not always, and therefore higher in en energy density, which could lead to obesity if you're feeding only canned. Um, the negative aspects of using these foods is that they can't be left out or free-fed because bacteria will grow more quickly with the higher mo moisture content than the dry foods. There are also some of these products that are sold in chubs. You guys have seen these, like, or, you know, the kind of fresh pet type of foods. Um, and not always, because fresh pet is not an example of this, but often um, those type of diets are not complete imbalanced. So whenever you're picking up one of those, you really need to know, is this a complete imbalanced dog food, or is this meant to be on top of my dog's food as like an enhancer? Then you have semi-moist foods. Um, they're highly palatable, and they have a high cost compared with canned foods. They also have a higher sugar content and lower fiber content than the canned foods. They used to be really popular. I don't know. When I was a kid, there used to be those uh, tender vittles that the cats all loved. Uh, <laughs> but they've fallen out of favor because in many, especially cats, that higher sugar content, if the cat was prone to diabetes, it would kind of push them over the edge. Um, but what's coming back is they'll introduce these softer, meaty morsels, even though they're not meat, into the dry foods as kind of like a palatability enhancer. So those are the three major types. And now we're going to break it down a little further and maybe make things a little bit more confusing. We also have homemade foods. And I think this is an important topic of discussion because I spend so much of my time formulating homemade diets for pets. It's becoming more and more popular. Um, and one of the reasons is because it's very palatable. Dogs think it's Thanksgiving every day when you put <laughs> these homemade foods in front of them. It's like all they want in the world. Um, so if your dog is not particularly a good eater, that's a way to get them going. Um, the good thing about them, in addition to the palatability, is they can also be formulated to meet the needs of an individual pet. They're also really digestible, which means the dog's going to be able to utilize much of those nutrients, um, whereas with a higher cooking process, those nutrients might not be as available. 
The downside to these type of diets is that although the recipes can be readily found online and in publications, they are not typically formulated by nutritionists and are usually not balanced, especially if they're in that manner. That means that I have a large number of patients who are eating poorly balanced homemade diets, which leads to more problems than if they ate a commercial food that was properly balanced. It's also tough because even when I formulate the diet, the, the owner takes the diet back to their kitchen and then they get creative. And uh, it, that's not the same. So you can't get creative. You can't say, oh, today I'm going to use fish instead of chicken. It's still low fat. It's fine. It's totally not fine. It's not the same thing. It changes the nutrient content of the whole diet and can render it imbalanced. So I can't control what you do in your house. Uh, this also... Um, alters, so as I was saying, it, it doesn't just alter the nutrient profile. For instance, in the case of the fish and the chicken, owners might think, hey, I'm just changing the protein. It's no big deal. Um, but there's changes in amino acids. There's changes in fat. Um, there's changes in energy density. So all of these things are taken into consideration by your nutritionist, but are hard to consider at home when you're in your kitchen. Other downside is that they're costly. So it costs uh, it costs money to have them formulated because it takes somebody hours to make your individual dog an individual recipe that's just for them and is meeting every nutrient requirement by the NRC and AFCO. The other consideration is, especially for you guys, a lot of you have big dogs. It is not cheaper to feed a big dog human food. Um, so it can get quite expensive really fast feeding all of that chicken, fish, beef, whatever you choose. The other downside is the time involved in the preparation of the diets, as well as the storage of the prepared diets. So once you make them all up, do you have the freezer space? Do you have the refrigerator space? So all of these are things to consider when you're thinking about, do I home cook or do I stick with the commercial diets? So in addition to all of these foods, we have specific purpose foods that are out there on the market. And these are foods with specialized nutrient profiles designed for specific applications, such as life stage, large or giant breed growth, there's light formulas, there's active products, there's oral care foods, there's skin and coat formulas, and the list can go on and on and on. Um, but those are out there, and they do meet those specific needs. And so if you're looking for an individual need for your pet, those things are out there and can be found. So I'm just going to touch on one of these designations. So uh, the growth and reproduction formulas. More recent, more, kind of recently, there's been a new requirement for dog foods and puppy foods growth formulas to be labeled for large breed growth. Why is that? If a dog is over 70 pounds in their adult weight, we want them to grow nice and even. We want that growth rate to be not too rapid, and also, but like I said, nice and even. This helps to prevent developmental orthopedic disease like angular limb deformities. And so how do we do that? Um, one way is to modify the calcium and phosphorus content of the diet. So we actually want to lower the calcium and phosphorus content in order to create this kind of healthy, steady bone growth. And there's actually a requirement for it to be less than 1.8% dry matter for calcium. And then the calcium to phosphorus ratio should be the same, one to one to two to one. 
Also, ideally, these foods are going to be formulated to have a more moderate calorie density. So we don't want them to have so much energy that they're shooting up in their growth. And again, those bones are growing too fast and um, maybe getting um, prone to developmental orthopedic disease. So we're going to look for, and this will say it on the bag if you, uh, if you look carefully, we want between 3.5 to 4.5 kilocalories per gram of food. And so that's what these things are aiming for. Um, we never used to see many angular limb deformities. Um, well, I take that back. There were many angular limb deformities, and then there was dog food, and there was hardly any. And then um, people started home cooking again, and now more and more we are seeing more and more angular limb deformities in these puppies as they grow just because we're not getting the calcium and phosphorus right. And so that's just another, another thought to keep in mind. So... We've talked about specialized foods, and now we're going to talk about what's the deal with these premium and super premium brands. What do they have to offer? So they're touting optimal nutrition, typically for all life stages, and they have a high cost and they're highly digestible. So again, they're made with ingredients that are meant to be easily absorbed by the dog. The super premium foods often also have various functional ingredients. So these are going to be things like extra antioxidants or joint supplements. They're typically found in pet stores, feed stores, or vet offices. They might cost more, but typically you can feed less because they're so bioavailable, and that might offset the cost. One thing on the super premium foods is sometimes I do see a lot of um, marketing geared towards the joint supplements. It has to be done a little bit carefully, and we have to keep in mind that typically in those foods, they're not allowed to reach therapeutic levels with their things like glucosamine chondroitin. So you will often need an additional glucosamine chondroitin supplement on top of the food. So what if you don't have the funds to have premium and super premium dog foods that I have seen cost near on $70 a bag? Um, don't feel bad. It's okay. <laughs> There's basic nutrition and economy brands that are marketed nationally and regionally, and they're sold in all sorts of grocery store chains and mass market st stores, mass merchant stores. These foods are balanced. I cannot tell you how many 17-year-old dogs I see eating these foods, and they're doing great. So we're meeting all of our nutrient requirements with these foods, and I don't ever want anyone to feel badly about feeding their dog a food that is complete and balanced. These brands that are out there are investing in advertising and marketing them more so than the others. They're also making foods that are appealing based on palatability, so they're they're always delicious. Think about um, kibbles and bits, right? The gravy that's in there, it's delicious. I don't care what you say. Um, <laughs> they're also appealing to humans. They're going to put shapes and colors and textures in there in addition to that low price to appeal to us humans. I really, really, really don't think most dogs care about what shape their kibble is in. <laughs> <laughs> I will preface that, though, with now there are some pretty cool foods um, out by especially Royal Canaan that are doing a lot of research in how dogs pick up their food and chew it. Um, so it, I, I, those are cool. The, you know, there's a boxer one, there's a pug one because they have flat faces, and so they can pick up the food um, more easily and chew it. So that, that is for real. But little bone-shaped and fish-shaped ones, I don't think the dog cares. 
Then we have private label brands, and these are store name foods that are produced, again, on a least cost basis or to reflect the pet care philosophy of the sponsor or the person producing them. They're often produced by the same manufacturer as other brands. So, for instance, Walmart's Pure Balance is made by the same manufacturer as Old Roy. So, hot button, organic and natural brands. These are a rapidly growing sector of the pet food market, and so it's important to understand what these designations really mean. I am going to just read you some quotes for a minute, which is a little bit boring, but I think it's important. So according to the AFCO website, organic, as defined, is an animal feed that meets production and handling requirements of the USDA's National Organic Program. According to the National Organic Program, organic products are produced through approved methods that integrate cultural, biological, and mechanical practices that foster cycling of resources, promote ecological balance, and conserve biodiversity. Synthetic fertilizers, sewage, sewage sludge, irradiation, and genetic engineering may not be used. Organic regu regulations specific for pet foods are currently being developed. In the interim, the uh, National Organic Program has said that pet foods claiming to be organic must meet human food regulations. What I'm trying to say with all of that is that organic is a USDA designation. That is for human foods. That is not for pet foods. We are for pet foods saying that we should comply with the human regulations, but it is not a pet food regulation. Certified organic foods can display the USDA organic seal and must be made of at least 95% organic ingredients. That means 5% of them may not be. It is important to note that producing food organically does not significantly alter the nutrient profile of the food and that the USDA does not consider organic foods to necessarily be safer, healthier, or more nutritious than conventionally produced foods. So natural, this is similar. The term natural applies to a product containing ingredients derived solely from animal, plant, or mined ingredients, which means that processes such as extraction, hydrolysis, and fermentation are permitted, but chemical synthetic processes are not. Some examples of ingredients that are chemically synthesized are chelated minerals, mineral amino acid complexes, vitamin supplements, and then things like propylene glycol, calcium ascorbate, and other preservatives such as BHA and BHT. Some of those things are not necessarily bad. So when we're chelating minerals, we think that they're better absorbed, um, and that's why it's done. Um, but that's not allowed with these natural products. Artificial preservatives, coloring, and flavoring agents are not considered natural. However, a product can be labeled as natural, but still contain synthetic ingredients as long as there's a disclaimer. So for instance, the label could say natural with added vitamins, minerals, and trace nutrients. <laughs> Since the product can't use synthetic preservatives, they often contain mixed tocopherols, and that would be vitamin E. They'll also use rosemary or ascorbic acid, uh, vitamin C, in their place. This might mean that the product has a shorter shelf life. There is no requirement or statement that natural feeds or ingredients are safer than those produced by chemical synthetic processes, and a feed or ingredient can still contain trace amounts of chemically synthetic compounds and still be considered safe and natural. First of all, it's important to understand that when it's labeled organic, when it's labeled natural, there may be organic or unnatural things in them still. There may not be, but there might be. 
It's also important to understand that the nutritional value of these foods are not different than those of conventionally produced foods. Um, I do have a lot of people ask me, well, uh, it, if it's organic chicken, does that make a difference? Can I, but I use organic chicken in my dog food. Um, no, the nutrient, the amount of protein is the same. Uh, the amino acid profile is the same. Um, and so that isn't a consideration. It's just if it makes you feel better that they're fed in a certain way um, to, to be able to make that decision for yourself. Raw diets. Raw diets are made of uncooked meat ingredients, often paired with cooked vegetables or grains. They are purported to improve overall health, enhanced vitality, increased energy, decreased body odor, and improvements in skin and hair coat. They can be found commercially or they can be home prepared. The downside to these diets is that they are also often nutrient imbalanced. And so I'm going to just report some study findings because I don't make this stuff up, I promise. In one study, five out of five raw diets, of um, some commercial and some homemade, had nutrient imbalance. So every diet that they took off the shelf or made at home um, had some nutrient imbalances. Some were severe, and one commercial food had a very low calcium to phosphorus ratio of 0.15 to 1. I do expect to see over time some nutrient, um, I'm sorry, some bone abnormalities with that. Um, that's because it could lead to secondary hyperparathyroidism, where bony tissue is replaced by fibrous tissue, resulting in increased risk of bone fractures and loose teeth. And I do see loose teeth more frequently in homemade pet foods or raw foods than I do um, with commercial foods. Some raw diets also contain bone in an effort to increase the calcium content of the diet or due to poor manufacturing processes. In some cases, these bony fragments couldn't be large enough to cause GI obstruction or perforation. Um, I had one client, and this was really cool. I, we talked about these concerns, and she actually took her tub of raw dog food um, to the veterinary hospital and said, x-ray this. And they, they did, and they sent me the x-ray, and honest to God, like, you, if you took the food and, like, pulled it apart, I didn't see bony fragments. But in the x-ray, there was a significant amount of bony fragments that I could see um, that I couldn't see with my bare eyes. So that was pretty impressive. Um, another risk is a risk to humans and to dogs, and that is the increased um, bacterial content of the food. Um, so we're going to expect, right, because it's raw food, we're going to expect higher E. coli, camelobacter, toxoplasma, and clostridia species. In studies evaluating this, 8 out of 10 raw diets containing chicken were contaminated with salmonella, and 50% of the raw diets sampled were contaminated with E. coli. You can lower but not eliminate the risk of raw diet feeding by choosing only human-grade meats that are inspected by the USDA. Use diets that meet AFCO feeding guidelines. Make sure you're cleaning and dis disinfecting feeding areas. If you're feeding a raw homemade diet, please have it balanced by a veterinary nutritionist so that we're not getting nutrient um, deficiencies or excesses. Don't leave your raw foods out for your pets because they'll um, accumulate bacteria faster than a dry food will. Um, while there is a viable risk of a pet getting infected um, from eating raw pet food, our dogs are really better at handling it than if we ate raw meat, right? Um, nonetheless, even if they're acting fine, um, they will have higher bacterial fecal content, um, and that will contaminate the environment that they're going to the bathroom in. 
So I do say that if you have an immunocompromised pet, raw food is not for them. If you have an immunocompromised person or a very young or very old person in your house, I do not think that you should be feeding raw to your pets. Another thing about raw diets. Raw diet feeding is often cited as being more natural for dogs who have evolved from wolves. So there's a pretty fun study um, in Nature that examined the genomic signature of dogs compared with wolves and the three different genes responsible for starch digestion. What they concluded from that study was that dogs were more genetically capable of digesting starches due to the novel adaptations of these genes, and that the early ancestors of modern dogs must have had these gene adaptations to thrive on a diet rich in starch, um, and that may have been a process that, was, that needed to occur um, for these dogs during that domestication process. So, um, so kind of fun just to know that the, the actual enzymes in dogs that are capable of um, digesting these starches um, are more capable of digesting the starches than wolves are. Guys, I'm just going to tell you a little something here. Dogs are not wolves. Um, they're dogs. I have a pug. Please believe me, she is not a wolf. <laughs> um, I also am not a monkey. I don't want to be fed like a monkey. I don't think my dog wants to be fed like a wolf, and I don't think they want to be fed like a human. Let's make our dogs dogs. All right, moving on from my soapbox. <laughs> Vegetarian diets. So these are seen as more wholesome and are used to correlate with human belief systems. They tend to be lower in protein, and the proteins will come typically from legumes rather than the meats. I do have a lot of dogs that do very well on vegetarian-based diets if they need them, um, but not for cats. All right, grain-free diets. So this will be a long one, too. Grain-free diets have become increasingly popular over the years and owners perceive them to be more health, healthful or are attempting to avoid grains due to potential food allergies. Understandable. More recently, there has been a correlation between dilated cardiomyopathy, and from now on I'm going to say DCM because that word is too big for me. Um, so there's a correlation between DCM and grain-free diets, um, exotic diets, or boutique brand dog foods. The potential causes of this association are still unknown. Secondary DCM, which is dilated cardiomyopathy that's not from genetic causes, is caused by deficiencies. It can be caused by deficiencies in taurine, thymine, vitamin E, and selenium. It can also be caused by toxicities such as grapeseed oil. Except for cocker spaniels and golden retrievers, Dogs with DCM are not typically taurine deficient. DCM associated with taurine deficiency was previously seen in lamb and rice dog foods with lower protein and higher fiber content from beet pulp. More recently, taurine deficiency in commercial diets was identified in eight diets. In this report, 15 of 24 dogs with taurine deficiency were eating a diet from one company in particular. All of these diets had legumes in the first five ingredients. In another study, dogs with DCM were evaluated, and only one dog fed a grain-based diet had low taurine. So we've got dogs on grain-free diets having low taurine, um, and we've got dogs on grain-based diets having low taurine. All other dogs in that study had a taurine within normal limits. 
So from 2014 to 2018, the FDA had reports of 325 dogs with diet-associated DCM. Goldens were the most commonly affected, and 64% of all dogs reported had low plasma taurine. 18 dogs had normal taurine and also had DCM. And 11 dogs had high taurine and still had DCM. Peas were the ingredient that were most strongly associated with DCM. There's an issue here with reporting and prevalence with the cases. We have to report these cases that we're seeing to the FDA, but a lot of them are going underreported. If we talk to veterinarians and we say, hey, have you seen cases of diet-related uh, dilated cardiomyopathy? They'll say, yeah, I do think I, I did, you know? And we'll say, did you report it to the FDA? No. Um, we got busy and like we had things to do. So um, a potential underreporting of typical breeds, um, and then there's overreporting of atypical breeds and taurine deficient dogs. So if a vet does actually get an owner to say, yes, please test the taurine content of my dog's blood, um, and then we prove that it is taurine deficiency, then the vet's going to say, yes, oh my gosh, we've actually documented a case appropriately. I'm going to report that to the FDA. But there's a lot of owners who can't afford that taurine test, and so that case may go unreported to the FDA. That said, owners are beginning to help with reporting and have created an online spreadsheet that can be obtained at taurinedcm.org. Currently, there are 540 dogs with about 60 having DCM or reduced heart contractility. So uh, what I'm trying to say is there's a lot that's unknown. I think the association between what we call bag diets, meaning uh, boutique, exotic, grain-free diets, is strong enough that it warrants consideration. We don't know why it's happening, but it seems to be happening. Um, so we just need to be vigilant, and we need to help our veterinarians um, kind of with reporting and so we can understand the cause and get to the bottom of it and fix it. It could be from deficiency in taurine. It could be from a deficiency in the precursors to taurine, which is methionine and cysteine. It could be from a decreased bioavailability of all of these nutrients getting sucked up maybe from the fiber in the food. It could be from an absolute deficiency of thymine, copper, choline, vitamin E, selenium, or L-carnitine. We really don't know. Alternatively, there could be other nutrient-nutrient interactions that pl at play or taxologic factors. There are prospective studies that are currently underway to try to understand this further. So hopefully we will know more in the future. Now that we know some of the various choices that are out there to feed your dogs and the pros and cons of each, how do you decide what's best? How do you decide um, how to make that determination? And <laughs> when you're going into the pet store, shoot, when I'm going into the pet store and I look at the shelves, there's an overwhelming amount of dog foods out there. There are clients that come to me and tell me what their pet is eating, and honest to God, I've never heard of it before. Um, new things are popping up every day. Um, so how do we decipher the information? We have to understand the pet food label. We have to understand the bag that we're looking at. And I am looking at my clock and realizing that I need to talk faster. So <laughs> hope you're all still paying attention because I'm changing topics on you. So we have two main panels when we look at a pet food bag, and we're going to go through both and uh, try to understand what we're looking at. 
There's the principal display panel and the information panel. The principal display panel has the product name, and that's going to have the manufacturer's name. It's going to um, contain important descriptors about the food. It's going to have the picture of the food. It's going to tell you who it's for. Um, it's going to tell you the weight of the product. And it may have nutritional claims. It may say complete and balanced. It may say uh, great for skinny. The information panel, on the other hand, is the serious business. That's where it's going to have the ingredient statement, the guaranteed analysis, the nutritional adequacy statement, feeding guidelines, statement of calorie content, and then also some general information. And I'm going to tell you about all those things. The ingredient statement is in descending order by weight. So when we look at the ingredient statement, um, first of all, we have to understand the names of what we're reading. Um, these ingredients have to conform to AFCO definitions. There are many shortcomings regarding evaluation of a food by the ingredient list. The first thing to know is that it's by weight, and weight is affected very much by moisture content of the ingredient going in it. So if a formula has a smaller amount of whole chicken breast, which has a lot of water, it may weigh more um, than a chicken meal, which is drier. So it could have less chicken in a breast, which goes to the front of the ingredient list because it's wet, than a product that had a drier chicken meal in it, um, but that went down the list because it's drier. Make sense? So there are also poor descriptives terms, right? So here we are reading the label, and it says meat byproducts. What does that mean? Uh, meat byproducts are non-rendered, clean parts other than meat, which include, but are not limited to, lungs, spleen, kidneys, liver, blood, bone, fatty tissue, stomach, intestines, and their feed contents. It does not include hair, horns, teeth, or hooves. That's gross. Meat products, like I said, can be good things. Good things are like lung, liver, kidney. Those have great nutritive value. Or... It can be utter connective tissue and bone, which have lower nutrient availability. You can read the ingredient list, and all it's going to say is meat byproduct. You don't know. Is it the good kind? Is it the bad kind? Now we're going to compare that to meat, uh, just meat. Meat is the clean flesh derived from mammals, which is limited to skeletal muscle, tongue, diaphragm, heart, or esophagus. Meat meal is the rendered product from mammalian tissues. It does not include blood, hair, hoof, horn, hide, trimming, manure, or stomach contents, that's gross. So uh, so now that I've read that to you, and you're probably just more confused than ever, as we all are, because, um, because how are you going to know? Is this meat byproduct okay? Is this meat byproduct, like, not the best? You can't really know. But sometimes you can decipher based on um, cost. Right, So if it costs more, you would hope that they're using the more expensive meats. I hate to say that, but usually it's true. It's not always true, but usually it's true. Some other official feed terms worth understanding are human grade and feed grade. Human grade means that every ingredient and the resulting products are handled, processed, and transported in a manner that is consistent and compliant with regulations made for good manufacturing practices and human edible foods. Um, so if you want to produce a human-grade food at your facility, it has to be regulated by um, a human-grade facility. I hope that makes sense. Feed grade is a material that has been determined to be safe, functional, and suitable for its intended use in animal food, is handled and labeled appropriately, and conforms to Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, 
unless otherwise expressly permitted by the appropriate state or federal agency. If a food is human grade, to be labeled as human grade, it really, really, really has to be able to go into your human mouth, um, which is really hard to do. So if it says that, that, that is truly a feat. Um, the information panel also has a guaranteed analysis, and that's the part that shows the crude protein, crude fat, max fiber, and moisture. What does that mean? Well, crude protein is the amount of nitrogen found in the protein and is a measure of the quantity of protein and not the quality of protein, which is better measured by amino acid profile. So you can have a really high-protein food, but it may not be really high-quality protein uh, or amino acids that the dog really needs. Um, What is crude fat? Crude fat is a measure of lipids, organic acids, pigments, alcohols, and fat-soluble vitamins in the feed. It's a marker of energy density, meaning usually if you have a higher fat food, you have a higher energy density food. Crude fiber is a measure of the organic residues and is a measure of insoluble fibers. So insoluble fibers are the fibers that don't easily get digested by the dog or utilized by the dog. Um, Then you have this whole measure of soluble fibers, which um, are not accounted for. So a food can have a moderate crude fiber content, but if they have ingredients that have a lot of soluble fiber, like vegetable material, the food may actually have a lot more fiber in it than you expect. Okay, moisture, this is important, is the amount of water in the food, and dry matter is what's left when the water is removed. So if you have a food that's 75% moisture, then 100% minus 75 is 25% dry matter. So 75% moisture, that means you have 25% dry matter left. This is an important concept to understand because it allows for the comparison between dry and canned foods. For instance, if a canned food has 10% fat and a dry food has 10% fat, then a canned food really has 40% dry matter fat while the dry food only has 11% dry matter fat. So an easy rule of thumb to help estimate is that if you have a value... If you take a canned food value, right, so say your fat content of your canned food is 4%, and then you multiply it by 4, then the actual dry matter content of fat is 16%. So take your canned food value and multiply it by 4. If you have a dry food to get to the dry matter, you take your value and you add 10%. So say your your dry food has 10% fat, then you add 10%, which is 1%. 10 plus 1 is 11% dry matter. Does that, you guys following? Because I, I do know a lot of times veterinarians will say, I want you to have a food for your dog with pancreatitis that is under 10% fat. And then you go to the pet store and you find your 4% fat canned food, and that is not appropriate because that's actually 16% fat. Okay? Okay. The information panel will also have a nutritional adequacy statement which will help you understand how the food was determined to be complete and balanced. So if it says on your bag, complete and balanced, 100% nutritious, then the label must indicate the method and life stage that was used to substantiate that claim. There's three different methods used to substantiate the claim. The first is the formulation method, which would say on the bag, for example, Dr. Streeter's fabulous dog chow is formulated to meet the nutritional levels established by AFCO dog nutrient profiles for for example, adult maintenance. Um, AFCO nutrient profiles are published for either growth and reproduction or adult maintenance. That means essentially that the food ingredients, 
their nutrient profiles were added up and calculated, and everything appears to meet nutrient requirements um, for AFCO um, in that particular life stage. Then there's a second method, which is used to substantiate the claim, and that's a feeding trial. That would read like animal feeding test using AFCO procedures to substantiate that Dr. Streeter's fabulous catch-out provides complete and balanced nutrition for the life stage, like growth. There's four life stages for feeding trials. It can be growth, maintenance, all life stages, um, and gestation and lactation. Okay, the longest period for the feeding trial is six and a half months, and that's for maintenance. So during that time frame, um, they're going to assess if there's any obvious nutrient deficiencies at play. Um, For instance, they'll have eight dogs that are fed only that diet um, for that six and a half months, They'll check body weight weekly and minimum blood work. The idea is that it would help to detect the vast majority of nutrient deficiencies. But in truth, it doesn't detect things that would be harmful over a much longer period of time, which is a lot of nutrient deficiencies. The third method is the stinkiest method, and I don't know why it exists anymore. But this method is used to substantiate the label claim is the family method. So with this method, a food which is nutritionally similar to a different food in the same product line um, that has undergone feeding tests can be used <laughs> to substantiate the claim. So they'll say a product is considered similar if it has nutrients, calorie content, and processing type similar to a different food. And then the statement would read, Dr. Streeter's fabulous dog chow provides complete and balanced nutrition for gestation and lactation and is comparable in nutritional adequacy to a product that has been substantiated using AFCO feeding tests. So we didn't actually test this food, but we tested one that was kind of like it, and it was okay. So... <laughs> So it's important to read those and understand um, the difference in what you're looking at. Snacks, treats, and supplements don't need nutritional adequacy statements because they're not meant to be fed as the sole source of nutrition. If a pet food fails to meet the AFCO requirements and isn't a treat, a snack, or a supplement, then it has to be labeled. This product is intended for intermittent or supplemental feeding only. So examples of these types of food are canned meat products or toppers, which can look surprisingly similar to complete and balanced diets um, and have confused many people, and also some veterinary therapeutic diets. So these veterinary therapeutic diets are diets um, that will say use as directed by your veterinarian because some nutrients are specifically and intentionally lacking in order to manage a disease. For instance, phosphorus is low in renal diets. Um, because that can potentiate um, the progression of the renal failure. The label will also have feeding guidelines, which must list the life stage it's for. Um, These are guidelines only, and there's a lot of individual variation. I can't tell you how many fat dogs have become fat because people were reading the back of the bag and how much they should feed. Um, The exception to the rule that there must be feeding guidelines is, again, on those veterinary therapeutic diets where your vet should be telling you how much to feed. So ask them if they don't tell you. It's just that they got incredibly busy and they need to be reminded nicely and gently. Since uh, there can be so much variation in the amount that needs to be fed for each individual dog, it's best to calculate or have your veterinarian calculate how many calories your dog should need in a day and then um, use the, in, the calorie statement to help you determine how much to feed rather than reading off the bag, oh, my dog's 60 pounds, it should eat this. The statement of calorie content must be based on metabolizable energy and is reported in kcal per can or kcal per cup or kcal per kg. 
Um, the calculation used to determine the energy content of the food has to be stated too. And it can be done either by feeding trials to help determine it or they can calculate it. If your dog was told to be fed 1,200 calories a day and it, the energy density of the food was 400 calories a cup, then the dog would need three cups a day. 1,200 divided by 400 is three cups a day. The general information that's needed on the information panel um, is, is important um, because it's going to have things like the UPC, the manufactured by, imported by, distributed by information. You think that is not important, but that's the part of the bag that you should probably save. So I know we all take our bag of dog food and we dump it into a container to keep it fresher and longer. Save that piece of the bag because should you ever wonder if there's an issue with your pet food, that's what we're going to take um, to the FDA and let them know the batch number so they can see are more dogs getting sick with this batch number manufactured by date and things like that. All right, so to sum it up, look for what's right for your individual pet and then you too. What works best for your pet? Now, does that also work best for you? The plan is to try to see the forest through the trees and don't sweat the small stuff. If you have questions, talk to your vet or local veterinary nutritionist. You can find all sorts of veterinary nutritionists at acvn.org and it will tell you if they take remote consults or not. Um, we literally spend our days thinking about dog food, and um, we want to help you. Um, so don't be afraid to reach out to your vet or your vet nutritionist if you need us. All right. Thanks, guys. Good afternoon. Thank you for this presentation. It's great. Good. Um, I'm sure you're aware that recently there was a report that a bunch of different dog foods were, uh, um, were cited as having some problems. I'm not sure what the problems were, but one of them was the dog food that my dog eats, and um, she eats Taste of the Wild, so, and um, she's still here, so that's good. Um, the point is, though, uh, how seriously should we take these kinds of advisories about different dog foods and recalls? Yeah, so if there's an actual recall, you take it super serious. Um, you let someone know, you take the food back, you get a different food. Um, if it's just something posted on the internet, you do not take it serious um, until you talk to your vet and find out if there was an actual recall because people can post anything all the time. <laughs> and there's a lot of anecdotal um, information out there. So, um, you know, somebody's pet was going to get sick because it ate out of the garbage, but that happened to be the same day that they switched the food. They might blame the food, for instance. So, um, so real recalls you pay attention to. If it's not a real recall, you talk to your vet. Um, and you look for a real root call first. Quick question. You were saying the part of the bag um, that we should keep. Uh, mm -hmm. Is there, a, in general, a certain part of the bag where that's located, like the bottom of the front or the bottom of the back? It, they or? can be on, the, on different sides, but where I typically find it is that, you know, the skinny panels on the sides of the bag yeah. at the bottom um, okay. near the barcode. So it'll, that's typically where it is, but it doesn't have to be there. With different kinds of dog foods, um, does that, the amount that you feed the dog vary? I think the question was, with the different types of foods, is the amount that you feed the food clear, right? Was that what you asked? So it's always listed on the back of the bag how much you should feed their dog for that particular weight. You need to feed the dog for its ideal body weight. So if your dog is a chubby 80-pounder, but it's supposed to be 60 pounds, then you feed the 60-pound weight. 
More ideally, it'll say how many calories per cup on that bag, and you'll have, you'll have calculated out how many calories your dog needs. That's not on the bag. You have to do that on your own or with your vet, and then, and then decide how much to feed that way. It's kind of a, a, a rule, not necessarily gospel. Um, when should you consider changing a dog over from a proactive health to maybe a senior food? Yeah, that's actually a good question and one I get very frequently. The senior dog foods can be a little bit variable. Um, some senior dog foods are going to be higher energy for those senior dogs that are getting um, too skinny, and some are going to be lower energy for those senior dogs that are getting too chubby. Um, in general, I don't think you need to, to feed a, a senior food unless your dog is, in fact, showing signs that it's geriatric and you are switching to that particular food for a specific reason. Um, I think that's just a guideline that pet food companies are, are using to help guide people to, to their food, um, but not always is it required. You can stay on, you know, your seven, <laughs> your maintenance food for forever if your dog's doing well on it. Does that make sense? Your question. I use uh, Purina uh, for all life stages, and I was told by someone who, um, well, she's into nutrition and stuff. Uh, she's not a nutritionist, but she, you know, um, that it's not a good food. That it has too much. Um, that it has too much. Too many fillers. Yes, um, the fillers situation. So fillers. Um, I hate the term fillers. I. A lot of ingredients that are being claimed to be fillers have a purpose um, in the food, whether it's fiber content or um, it, usually it's fiber content. They'll, they'll say it's a filler. Um, an example might be, um, I'm going to say wheat hulls. I'm, that's just an example. Um, the hulls are the outer, outer portion of the grain, and that's the fibrous portion. Um, so fiber is not a bad thing, but someone sees it in there and they say it's a filler. Um, so I feed one of my dogs Purina. Uh, I don't think it's bad. Um, and I don't like to use the term filler <laughs> because usually the ingredients in there for some purpose um, but there it's a word that people are using to um, make other pet food brands look bad I have a retired 13 and a half year old retired guide dog back at home with my husband uh, he's has to generally eat the kidney food more or less and he's not doing too well with eating that one he's not wanting to eat that food mm-hmm I don't know if there's something I could do maybe to make it more delicious delicious or more, you know, palatable or if there's some way I can make some food for him. Yes. So the food that you're feeding is um, to manage kidney disease. That's what you're saying, right? Okay. Yeah. So um, there are so many different brands of renal disease management foods now with different flavors. So honestly try them all. Um, there's cans with different textures, different flavor. Royal Canin has different flavor chemistries. Um, no good, no go. Um, no, go with blue buffalo. Uh, so then, you know, try as many 
you know, I'm just saying, I don't know what you've tried or not tried, but um, try as many different brands and as many different flavors as you can. And then if that doesn't work, yes, you can um, have a homemade diet formulated for them. You just have to reach out to one of us vet nutritionists so that we can formulate to make sure the protein and phosphorus are right where it needs to be. So I had a question. How do we find a vet nutritionist? So um, in New York, um, there's me. If you go to acvn.org, American College of Veterinary Nutrition is what it stands for. There's a list of all the veterinary nutritionists and how they see consults. Um, so it's not, it's not, I'm not the only one. I hear a lot of people say that um, meal, like uh, lamb meal, chicken meal, whatever, if that's in the one of the top five ingredients, it's bad. Um, and then I've heard, on the other hand, that actually when it's specified what's in the meal, that that can be very good. Can mm-hmm. you talk about what meal means? Yes. So I'm going to look in my notes again to read the meal definition. Meat meal is rendered product from mammalian tissue. So what does that mean? It means um, basically they take the meat um, and potentially the bone and they grind it all up. Um, but it doesn't include blood, hair, hoof, horn, hide, trimming, manure, or stomach contents. Um, so, so typically, t- typically, it's like your meat. You've got a little muscle meat, and then any bone. And there's varying degrees of amounts of bone in these products. Um, so, I actually have some manufacturers who use these meat meals as their calcium and phosphorus source as well, because it's ground up in there so finely. Um, And um, otherwise, the other meat meals that have very little bone in them have very little calcium and phosphorus in them. And so those, if a company's choosing that meat meal product, they'll add calcium and phosphorus supplement to it. Um, So meat meal is is not bad. It's ground meat um, with with bone. The the more bone in it, the less digestible it is. (laughs) So the poor availability and therefore potentially quality it is unless you need that bone for your calcium and phosphorus. It's a balancing act. So how do we know which is the best kind of food for the dog that we have? And for instance, I have had labs, I've had a shepherd, now I have a labradoodle. And I know that poodles have different nutrition and allergy um, concerns than labs do. It's taking into consideration the activity level of your dog and what they are prone to, right? So if your Labradoodle is not allergic, it doesn't, you know, just because Labradoodles or Poodles are prone to more allergies doesn't mean that your dog is. So you, you have to look at your dog, and if it's not allergic to things, you, you have to not worry <laughs> about it and, um, you know, kind of use these guidelines to help you choose what's best. There's so many good products out there. It's really hard for me to stand up here and say, you need to pick this one because this one's the best. Um, Maybe it is a conversation that you have with your vet. What are the needs of my particular pet? If If it's really ambiguous, then, you know, you go with what feels good to you. And it's, it's just that simple, I hope. Completely recognizing that all of our dogs are different, just like all of us are different. Is there a guideline, a sort of general, how many calories a dog, uh, is there a calorie to pound ratio? So a dog that's 90 pounds needs X number of calories generally a day to 
um, maintain that weight. I know all dogs work differently and mm -hmm. have different metabolisms, but is there some sort of general guideline? My experience is the dog food bags tend to tell me to feed my dog about at least half again, if not twice as much as he should be eating. Um, yes. So is there some sort of general guideline to that? Yes. Yeah, so I will tell you the, the general, not so general guideline. Um, <laughs> first of all, there are calculators and apps online that will calculate this for you based on your dog's you, you put in the weight, you put in their body condition, you put in their activity level, and it spits out how many calories. How do I do it when you, you come to my office? It, there's a formula that I use, and um, I will tell it to you. <laughs> it is 70 times the body weight in kilograms to the 0.75. Um, and, so, and then you take that number and you multiply it by how active your dog is. So... <laughs> So unless you had a pen and you wrote that down. Um, but you can find the equation online. It's pretty readily available. Your vet can do it for you, or you, you can use an app um, to help you, which will calculate that for you, because it's based on how active they are in their body weight. 30 times the body weight in kilograms plus 70. I think that's right. <laughs> so if you have, let's see, an 80-pound dog, their kilograms are 36 times 30 plus 70. That means your 80-pound dog, do, dog who does nothing all day long gets 1,200 calories. Say he does a little something, right, because he's walking around with you all day. We're going to increase it by 40%. So your 80-pound dog should get about 1,625 calories a day. So 30 times the body weight in kilograms plus 70. And then you multiply by however energy, however active you think they are. Okay, that wraps up our Juno report for this month, and thank you so much, Dr. Streeter. Let's all go out and make great pet food selections. You've been listening to the Juno Report. Brought to you by Guide Dog Users Incorporated, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. The Juno Report is a monthly audio magazine featuring all things guide dogs, training programs, and items of general interest to guide dog teams. We welcome your feedback, ideas, and suggestions. Get in touch with the Juno Report by emailing Juno Report at guidedogusersinc.org. Again, that email address is Juno, J-U-N-O, report at guidedogusersinc.org. Until next month, this is Deb Cook-Lewis with the Juno Report saying, be good to your dog. Baby,